after Michael Vecchioni. And for fourth, fifth, whatever, doesn't matter, a million more. For everybody listening, you are hearing this on Rumble and BitChute and Spotify today, March 1st, 2021. You are not going to be hearing it on YouTube until Sunday, March 7th, 8th, whatever, 6th, because I was suspended from YouTube for a week for discussing election fraud with a CIA veteran of 20 years who apparently is not well-versed on the subject and I'm spreading misinformation and I did not know this. Fun fact, I did not know this. Discussing election fraud is actually hate speech, which I didn't know. But enough about that. And also for everyone listening, I will never stop discussing topics that aren't allowed to be discussed. They will just from now on be on Rumble and BitChute and not on YouTube. But that's enough of that because today we are not talking about anything related with that. We're talking about a pretty messed up story. And uh, for all the new listeners, Mr. Vecchione, please introduce yourself. So I'm Michael Vecchione, and um, I am the retired chief of the Rackets Division in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. I spent 13 years um, doing that work, and um, it was uh, some of the best time in my life, quite frankly, in terms of my uh, my work life, I should say. There are a lot of other good things in my life, but that was... That was good. I, I've done a lot of things in terms of working, but that was the best time that I that I had ever spent. So and um, uh, and seemingly, at least for me, the most terrifying time or unsettling time. I want to. Uh, I, I won't. I won't spoil it for anyone. But I want to read the first, the first pair or the first two paragraphs of uh, the story that we're talking about today. Hand of the Killer, based on true events. Just the first. I won't spoil the rest. Police Sergeant John Carney was too drunk to stand when a highway patrol cop uh, highway patrol cop removed him from his car. He had just plowed through a small group of children on their way to school. The group's chaperone, a 25-year-old black pregnant woman, was sprawled dead in the street a few feet away. Her mortally injured five-year-old son lay at her side. Three other young children, all critically injured, were scattered in the street like broken dolls. A police sergeant, a police sergeant arrived and took custody of Carney. Carney was a short, sickly man, red-veined, the ravages of uncontrolled alcohol abuse marked his face. The sergeant recognized Carney as a sergeant from his own precinct, the 75th. He gently took the drunken driver to an ambulance and ordered a young patrol cop to escort him to the hospital. Don't let them take his blood, he commanded the younger cop. Which is, I mean, the first paragraph alone was like, oh, okay, so this is setting the stage. This is very dark. You know, it's it's not the normal, you know, mafia surveillance. It's a guy plows through a group of kids. And it was like, okay. And then it goes one step further. And it's, bring him over here. I thought I thought we were going to get some street justice. I thought the cop was going to beat the shit out of him or something. Instead, it's, come over here. Don't let anybody take his blood. And it's like, okay. This is the blue wall. Are. Yeah, this is where we are now. And I was so, like, okay. So let me, let me explain to you how, why we started the story that way. Um, the story, as you well know, because you read it, goes into much, I guess, maybe midway through into a completely different mm-hmm. um, set of facts involving the death of a young woman. Um, but what we did was we started the uh, story this way, because while that is a, a true case, it didn't happen exactly that way. We had to change the names and some of the facts um, for 
reasons that we felt comfortable we, we felt uncomfortable you know exposing some of the people who were involved in that case um to it in a book so we or in a story so we changed some of the uh, some of the names but the fact that a cop did exactly what you you have just read is true his name is different than carney he was in a different precinct but when you continue to read and you find out that he had spent the night in a strip club drinking and then went back, got into his car afterwards, that's all accurate in terms of what actually happened. The, um, there was also, what is also accurate is maybe not in exactly the way that we wrote it because it was a little bit more dramatic the way we wrote it, but he was not given a breathalyzer test um, or a blood test, which, was part of the issue with ultimately prosecuting this guy. And I'll jump to the to the end of that story because that is really not the story that Hand of the Killer is, is about, but he ultimately gets convicted mm-hmm. and he goes to jail. And um, I'm not sure what happened to him. I don't know if he's still alive, but he was a very, you know, a really horrible case. I mean, this, this guy um, literally, literally spent an entire evening drinking with strippers and drinking to the point where he was just completely without control. And can you imagine getting behind the wheel of a car and then hitting people and killing them? Because that's what he did. So uh, it, anyway, I just wanted you to understand that for some, in, in, in some instances for dramatic effect and to make it a little bit more, um, uh, a, connect we we connected later on as you see we started the story with that story so it's actually two actual cases that we kind of put together and we used the case of carney as kind of the intro into the way that our unfortunate young lady gets killed later on in the um in the short story so um so just understand that yeah when I, yeah and it um you know, there's there's a part of it that, uh, you know, it does kind of raise an important question because nothing is as simple as black and white. You know, it's uh, the blue wall. You know, it's nothing. You know, it's all Trump supporters are racist. Everyone on the left is a communist. Like, it's never that easy as much as we'd like for life to be that easy. It's never that easy. And so, I mean, and like there is a point that um, is made in the story and it's you know, yes, he did this. Yes, he was drunk. He was spent all night at a titty bar and was too drunk to even stop for a red light. But that doesn't change like the service he did do for Brooklyn. I listened to a, one of my favorite podcasts is a uh, Lex Friedman, Friedman, um, who just smarter than you and I in his in his pinky. But uh, he had a, on a guy the other day and they were talking about there are certain truths like mathematics. And he's like, there was like a famous mathematician, like a PhD in like the 1900s who uh, solved some, like, uh, brilliant theorems. He also murdered his son. That doesn't make his theorem not real. You That's know? true. You know, the, the, true. The, 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 whoever discovered penicillin, if that guy raped his wife and killed her, that doesn't make the discovery. And it's hard to swallow that pill. It's hard to swallow that pill. But that just kind of made me think, like, Okay, it's easy for, you know, to say the edgy, uh, it's the blue wall, they're never going to prosecute their own. But then what if you are looking at it from the standpoint of someone in charge and you're like, that is a guy that 
served and I can't, you know, if I fuck him over, does that set a precedent for everyone else? But that's not, that doesn't really concern the rest of the story that we're going to be talking about, but it is a point right. I want to make. And and I just want, you know, your your readers to, uh, your listeners to, to know that um, I, I was never afraid of prosecuting police officers. Oh, I know you weren't, I, yeah. I, I, I was in charge of the police department's disciplinary uh, system at one point for a few years. And then when I went to the DA's office, I had a few cases in which, uh, you know, I prosecuted, uh, we prosecuted cops. So yeah. um, let's draw so that, that distinction. That, yeah. Sorry. Let's draw yeah, that, that distinction is as much as I say that, 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 that in no way applies to you. You, you are, you have written books on the number of cops you have taken down. So that yeah. doesn't apply. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, well, of course, Caracappa and Eppolito was right at the top That's of that, the uh, friends of the family. So um, so the so the reason let me give you the um, this the beginning of unless you have a question, I, I'll I can start with the hand of the killer story. And um, and we can you know, we can go from there. if you'd I w- like. I was going to bring up something about the hand of the killer, but that would spoil it. No, that would spoil it. I was going to say, the okay. atten- I was going to say okay. the attention to detail is something that that's a mess. That's a, a lesson right. that can be applied to other aspects of life, but I'll get to that in time. So what happens in the story is a little different than what happened in, in real life. When I, when I joined, rejoined the DA's office in 1992, um, Brooklyn had just gone through a very traumatic uh, period in which there were uncontrolled riots uh, that had happened in the Crown Heights section of the borough, which is a very heavily Hasidic Jewish area, who and 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 a African American and Caribbean American area. So there was and there was always tension in that in that neighborhood until one day. When um, when a rabbi was traveling from one place to another within the within the confines of uh, of that area, he uh, his his car struck a young African American kid who was on a bicycle and killed him, and that was the you know the the match that set off the you know the bonfire and then the forest fire that took place later on. There had been tension, and um, and that's what started. Which started the the riots because um, the uh, black African Americans and the black Caribbean Americans didn't feel as if the um, the there was due uh, investigation and due deference to the kid and that they thought that the rabbi was going to get off and none of that was true because. To tell you the truth, my friend, a friend of mine, was assigned to that case, and he was my deputy in um, in the rackets division. And there's a guy who would not allow something like that to happen. But we had days and days of riots in in Brooklyn at that time. During that, during those riots, a um, a visiting Jewish scholar from Australia happened to be walking down the street when he was set upon by a group of African-American, Caribbean-American people, and, um, and he was murdered. His name was Yonkel Rosenbaum. Um, so you could imagine how now, how heightened everything was. You had the poor little kid who was killed by the rabbi in his car. Then you had this, this, this visiting uh, uh, visitor from Australia who was killed by a mob in Brooklyn. It was, it was chaos. Um, and the, 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 I guess it was the detectives, the DA's office, the people who were, who were handling all of these things, handled them. I mean, just the way that you would handle them. And we arrested, there was someone arrested, um, 
for the um, for the killing of this young scholar. There was no one arrested for the the accident involving the uh, the kid on the bike because it was just that it was an accident. And no matter how much some people tried to make it an intentional act, it just wasn't. It was just carelessness and and an accident. And you know, and that's and and the person was who was involved in that, the rabbi's driver was, was taking, was handled, you know, with, as a result of it. So, um, but that didn't satisfy the community and, uh, and the rioting occurred and it lasted several days. Um, mayor Dinkins was the mayor in New York at the time. Um, he, he, he pointed, he appointed then Ray Kelly, who was in the police department to, take charge of the investigation and quell the riots and and ultimately things calm down okay so that's the background the true background in um and i'll tell you how that leads into the story what happens is i now come into the da's office and i take over the homicide bureau when i first came back and um the the case involving the death of the scholar from australia was assigned to my to two assistant DAs in my operation, and they handled the case, and um, and it was, and they lost the case. They did, they did not win. The individual who was involved with the the killing of the uh, the scholar from Australia was acquitted. That set off now <laughs> unrest, to call it that, on the side of the Jewish part of the uh, of the community. In the midst of all of this, Tommy, a young woman is coming home from shopping on a Friday, late Friday morning. Now in the book, we have her as the wife of a, of a police officer from the same precinct as the Carney case. So you see, we, we set up the, you know, the conflict. Um, in real life, she was a young mother with a young girl who uh, was coming home from shopping. And as she was unloading her car and, and bringing it into her home, she left the door to her home open. She went down to the car, up the stoop, into her home, bring her bags, go out to get another one, etc. She's attacked. And we find out that um, someone, a friend of hers was waiting for her to bring a uh, some food for the Shabbos dinner, Sabbath dinner, and she didn't show up. So the neighbor went into her home or up to her home and saw the door open, just like we have it in the story, and um, and noticed that this woman was nowhere to be found. She went up the steps, pop put you know poke, poked her head in the door and saw the little uh, her little daughter in the apartment, and went further into the apartment and further down this kind of long corridor or foyer she saw her friend's body um and this young mother had her pantyhose and panties pulled down around her ankles she had um she had been stabbed it was very easy to see there was blood all over the place it turns out when the medical examiner looked at her she was stabbed about 40 times jesus and um you didn't and say that in the story no and she no we didn't and she was dead obviously now what happens is there is no uh there are no witnesses at this point but i go to the scene 
And I notice when I walk into the corridor or the, the foyer that above the body is a handprint in blood on the wall. Now, of course, we don't know whose handprint it was. It is. We don't know anything about it. And I'll never forget this. And I'm not sure if we include this in the story. The detectives say to me, well, what do you want us to do about the print? I say, cut the wall out. Yeah, yeah. You cut out the whole section. Right. We cut out the entire piece of wall. And I say, voucher it, which means safeguard it and put it in a place. Because if we ever find someone, we're going to have to compare the prints on the palm and the prints on the fingers to the bloody palm print in the wall. So the case at that point kind of um, flounders a bit because the detectives now have to do their job and they have to, you know, kind of fan out into the neighborhood and um, and see what, if anything, they can find out about what happened to this to this woman. Ultimately, a few days later, they come up with a uh, I'll I'll describe her as a um, kind of a very excitable neighborhood type, you know, uh, uh, you know, gossipy type of woman who says to them, you know something, I was on the street at that time and some guy came up to me and wanted and started talking to me. And she describes this. uh, He was a Caribbean American guy, this guy. And he, she felt very frightened because keep in mind, the neighborhood is a tinderbox, right? You got everybody yeah. disliking everyone else and not knowing what's going to happen next. Yeah, you said that in the story. You said it's a it's a racially mixed neighborhood, which is yes. co- code for not everyone was best friends with everyone. That that's correct. And and when this woman, uh, let me go back a, a bit to this to the actual murder scene. When that night, when the when the when word started to spread through the neighborhood. There was a demonstration in front of this young woman's house because there had been rioting, there had been demonstrations, there had been demonstrations, there had been rioting, and now there's this demonstration. After everybody believes it's calmed down, there's now this big demonstration in front of the house. So um, this crazy, I don't want to say crazy because she wasn't crazy. She was very excitable. Yeah, Yeah, gossipy. Yeah, yeah. She she gave the police a very good description. And she said they asked her, where did you see the guy go after you told him you weren't interested in whatever he was trying to to do? She said he walked down towards the house of this young woman who was killed. So that's a pretty good lead. You know, then then now you got to you got to look around. So what they did then was they looked and, and went to the houses around the house that this woman lived in. And they go um, to a street behind the house because there was sort of a, a an alleyway backyard kind of thing behind this young woman's, this young mother's home. And uh, they noticed that when they went into the kitchen and looked out into the alleyway, they noticed that... Um, there was a, uh, a home right, you know, the back of that home and the back of this home kind of faced one another with this alley in, be- in between. So they went and knocked on the door of that place, just on the off chance that, you know, they maybe somebody saw something or heard something. And sure enough, a young guy, African-American guy says, you know, 
I did see something. I saw this guy coming out of the kitchen window that that morning or that afternoon. And um, when he saw me, he looked at me and he took off and he went running down the alley and I didn't see him again. So now we had we had a second um, witness. Right. But the big break in the case comes with the police having spread out and having passed the word that anyone who has encountered this or a guy who was seemed to be bothering people on the sidewalks to let uh, let them know. Right. So they get a call from a woman who says, you know, I think I know who you're talking about. And she tells them that there was this guy who wanted to, who, who, who bothered her. And, I'll, and I guess I can say it. What he liked to do was he liked to touch and fondle the asses of these Hasidic women. He he would in yeah, that he, neighborhood. Yeah, he would go up to women. He would put yeah he would put their hand around his neck, and yeah he would like to put his hand in their butt or insert a finger into their rectum. It's just correct. Uh, some some fucking freak. Yep, absolutely. That's what he was. She had him arrested. Yeah, and that was the break because we found who it was. We then um, we then pick. Uh, at some point, we do a uh, photo lineup, and they, he gets picked out of the photo lineup by the woman on the street, the woman who had him arrested, and the kid from who saw him coming out of the window. But photo lineups are not the ideal. You want to have a regular lineup. So we set up this lineup, and I'll never forget this because it was it was comical that night when we had it. They pick up the woman from the street and they bring her in and I'm there and I say, who is this? He said, well, this is, I forgot what her name was. Mrs. Smith, let's call her. I said, are you kidding me? That's not her. He goes, oh, no, no, it is. She had come into the precinct with a wig on, with different clothes. She had with glasses. She, she disguised herself because she thought that whoever she was going to view was going to be able to see her and she was frightened to death. Well, what does she do? She picks him out. That's the guy that bothered me. The guy behind her who saw him coming out the window, picks him out. That's who it was. And this young, and this woman, of course, knew him. The woman who he had, who, who had him arrested, knew him and, and there was no problem. So, so now we had a case. Now let me go back to the scene of the crime for a second. When, um, when this young woman was carrying her packages inside the home and she was with her young daughter, I think the daughter was maybe two. I don't remember what I said in the story of two or three, not much more than that. But she used to suck on a pacifier, a baby's pacifier. And, um, the one thing that um, this that her another friend of this this poor woman who was killed came that day to soak up the blood that was left because in the Jewish religion everything about the body and blood has to be buried with the with the body. Okay. So her friend came with rags and with cloths and soaked up the blood, um, and she noticed and she also noticed that um, the daughter was not sucking on a pacifier. Now, what had happened just after the 
the uh, woman, her neighbor, found the dead mother on the floor. She went and looked for the daughter who had been at that point hiding. I know we have it a little different in the book. We have her sitting in the living room, but she had been hiding in the back bedroom and um, she did not have the pacifier. So now we had two people telling us that a pacifier belonging to this young girl um, was nowhere to be found. The woman, the night day of the murder, no pacifier. The woman who came to clean later on, no, no pacifier. So, you know, it was a fact that you put in the back of your head, right? So the, once we get the identifications, um, we, we then, I'm sorry, I, I, I have it backwards. We, I, we got the identifications with, the, um, with the, the photo identifications first. That's what it was. Now we were satisfied, we could pick them up. We had enough to arrest them. But photo identifications are not as reliable as in-person and we were gonna hold the lineup that night, but we had to get them first. I'm sorry, I, I misled your, your audience. So we found him, we, we found out where his, uh, he had a relative who lived in the neighborhood, where the relative lived. And the detectives showed up at that house and they were having some sort of a gathering. I forgot what it was, it was either a christening or some kind of gathering. And there was um, the defendant sitting on a couch and he was holding a baby. It was the baby of his cousin or brother, whoever it was, was having this party. So um, his name was Raymond LaFond. That's the real name of the killer. When uh, the detectives came in and they said, we're here for you, he gave the baby to, his, um, to someone in the house. And he stood up and when the detectives patted him down, in his in his pants pocket was a pacifier, a baby's pacifier. Now, he was holding a baby. Yeah. But he had the pacifier in his pocket. So the detectives called me from the scene, from the scene of the arrest. And they said, what do you, what do you, do you want me to do? What do you want us to do with the pacifier? I said, voucher it, which means seize it, hold it. I said, you never know. And I had really not enough evidence at that point to connect the pacifier to everything and as you know if you read the story you know that it becomes crucial yeah it's that's yeah it's later on that's that's what i was gonna say is like that's kind of like the lesson i grabbed from it it's like um it's with this podcast like i edit everything compress it but i keep like the original files i keep all 377 of them it's like six terabytes six thousand gigabytes of information but i keep (laughs) copies because i never know when i'm gonna need something and it sounds insane and it probably is but i mean your my logic is is like i'd rather have it if i ever have to go back and find something for whatever reason and here you go is Yep. Grab the pacifier. Why? Just get it all. Let's just be safe. Little do they know that that's the nail in the coffin. Right. And, you know, the thing is that it was it really was. And I'm not trying to blow my own horn here, but it was experience. I mean, the yeah. DA gave me this case because we had lost the other case. And now we have another case in that same neighborhood in which both 
communities are up in arms and he didn't want to suffer yet another you know defeat because quite frankly in the first case he, the, the person should have been convicted it was just a, a bad situation and uh, this time he didn't want it to um to to go that route he wanted to make sure justice was done but you know do it in a way that the real that the killer would be would be found guilty so he gave, gave me the case i had it and and fortunately I was able to, to, the detectives called me because God knows what they would have done with that pacifier. They probably would have thrown it on the couch where the yeah. guy was sitting and, and thinking it was the babies that he was holding, right? So we get to the pre, we now comes the lineup and we bring all these people in and everybody identifies them. And he makes a statement, which was basically, I didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do it. So, um, so we were off to the races. That was it. We had three witnesses, and I and the and the reason I I meant neglected to say this. The reason that the kid in the other home behind this one was looking out the window is that when Lafon came out the window, his the kid's dog started to bark. Who was in the yard, you know? So um, so that kind of brought him to the window, and he saw Lafon coming out of the window. So we were very fortunate with that. So we had three pretty good witnesses. We had, um, you know, we had uh, um, the bloody handprint, which, of course, when he was arrested that night or before he was arrested, we took his palm print and compared it to the bloody print that I told him to cut the wall out. So we had it and they compared it and it was a match. It was him. So so I had the bloody palm print. I had the woman on the street. I had the kid behind. I had the other woman. Good case, yeah. right? I was very pleased. So I remember this again as if it was yesterday. We're in court. It wasn't the first time it was on the calendar because it was that would be the arraignment. It may have been the first time the case was on before the the judge who was going to be the trial judge. So I ask him. I'm now thinking that. Listen, I got this blood. If I nail his, if I get his DNA in that bloody, you know, palm print, which I'm sure is the woman's blood, but if his DNA is in there, then I, then he could say whatever he wants to say, but I got him, right? So the judge agrees, orders him to give us a DNA sample. And sure enough, <laughs> he does. And when I get called by the medical examiner's office and they tell me what the result was, I almost fell off my chair. They said, his DNA is not there. Someone else's DNA is there. Of course, the woman's DNA is on the blood, oh, yeah. is there because it's our blood. Our bl yeah. But someone else's DNA is there. So I now couldn't, uh, couldn't believe what I had done. I had taken a case that was virtually indefensible and given the defense attorney a a defense you went for you had the extra point and you decided to go for two points correct and it was why <laughs> why did i do that correct yeah. correct I, I i'll i won't tell you right now but i'll tell you remind me to mention it to you i did this once one other time too um and um so now I turn, of course, I turn this over. It's, it's exculpatory information. You got to turn it over. And I did. The defense attorney was a guy that I know. I'd known him for years. And he kind of looked at me and, and 
outside the presence of his client said, thanks, you know, thanks. Because I had now given him something to argue. He had no way to, uh, to argue this. So now I had to figure out a way out. How am I going to handle this? So I was pretty good friends with the the head serologist. He's the guy that examines blood mm -hmm. in the medical examiner's office. I had known him for several years. In fact, he was one of the guys that was a pioneer in DNA and DNA uh, testimony and DNA evidence and trials. And I remember years before when I was in the DA's office the first time I had done a case um, in which a um, it happened to be a Jewish victim as well, and um, and he with the, what what kind of convicted the defendant in that case was a bloody T-shirt that had been discovered in this guy's social club, and when they took it into the precinct, uh, the medical examiner's office was just at the early stages of the DNA analysis, and the DN and this guy Robert Shaler is his name. Um, told me that we had the right guy. How do you, I said, how do you know that? He said, well, from his blood. I said, what do you mean from his blood? And you can match the type? He said, no, no. He said, we have this new thing now. And that's how I would describe it, this new thing, because no one knew what DNA was. And I said, well, how can you be so sure? He said, I can tell you that the characteristics of this blood on this guy's shirt is in the population of, and of course we had the dead guy's blood, right? And he said, that match is like his blood is in like the match is sort of in one one millionth of the population. You can narrow it down that much that the blood on the shirt and the blood in the dead guy are the same based on these characteristics that are in the blood. Now, Tommy, now I know it's DNA. I didn't know what he was talking about at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's it was new science at the time. Yes. Was, so it, it was it, it was great. So now do you still I, know, do you still know him? Um, yeah, 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 I still know. I'm not sure if he's at the DA's office any longer, but I mean, at the medical examiner's office any longer. And I know get, what you got to ask. You think you can get, 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 get him for well, me? I promise you I will try. Okay. okay. All right. Noted. All right. Continue. So, um, so now I had, you know, Robert Shaler, Dr. Shaler in my head. And I said, he's the guy I got to call. So I, 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 um, asked him to come to my office and he comes in one, one afternoon and I lay out this whole thing about the um, about the, uh, the the blood and the handprint and another person's uh, DNA and the handprint. So he says to me, Mike, that's not specific enough. Tell me everything about the crime scene as it was discovered and 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 other things, whatever is not there, too. You know, there are some things that may not. So we go through the entire the entire scene that I saw, that the detective saw, that the crime scene unit saw everything. And then I talk to him about, and I say, you know, about the little girl and, um, and the, uh, and the, the pacifier. He says, Hmm, tell me about the pacifier. So I tell him, I tell him that this little girl was, I guess, I don't want to use the word addicted, but she was, yeah. she, she was connected to that pacifier and had it all the time. And, um, and I said, it's nowhere to be found. And I said, listen, but there is a pacifier that we found on LaFon's person in his, in his uh, pants. I don't know, you know, if it's 
her pacifier. I don't know whose pacifier it is. I just, I don't know, but we have it. So he said, you got to find out one thing for me and then I'll tell you what we'll do. I said, okay. Tells me I need to find out if the little girl had a cold or had a runny nose or something of that nature. I said, okay, I'll do that. So I call him. I call his, uh, I call him his, her friend, uh, the mother's friend who cleaned up the place. I called the other neighbor and, and her and the f- little girl's father. And all of them tell me that, yes, she had a cold. In fact, her mother was concerned. She had taken her to the doctor. She had she had a runny nose and she was she was, um, you know, uh, uh, not feeling well. I said, OK, so I call um, I call back Dr. Shaler. And he says to me, here's what we're going to do. Tell the father that we want him and the little girl to come into the ME's office. And we're going to take the father's blood because, you know, Mike, defense attorneys always blame the husband first. So we we have to eliminate him. Well, yeah, I mean, to be fair, though, right, you got to you got to make sure. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And then we'll take the little girl's blood. So I said, okay, you know, I'll do that. Let's see what happens. He said, make sure you don't get rid of the pacifier, however. I said, no, 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 it's all secure. It's, it's no problem. So I would say about three or four days later, we get the result. And he tells me, he tells me, first of all, that they both came in, took blood, and that he rushed to do the um, DNA analysis of the blood of the little girl and of the husband. He said the husband Mike eliminated his DNA is not that unknown DNA in the palm print. Of course, I was happy about that because that would have really thrown a monkey wrench into this. He says, but the little girl, it's her DNA. It's mixed in with this guy's with the with his, her mother's blood in this guy's palm, palm print, which we know is his palm print. He said, Doc, what are you talking? How is that possible? He said, Didn't you tell me she had a, a pacifier? I said, Yes. So how about this scenario? Because you know that the little girl was hiding in the back room, right? He said, So he comes in, he's gonna kill her mother. He takes the pacifier out of her mouth, puts it into his pocket, she runs into the back room, and he does his dirty deed on the mother, right? He touches the pacifier, mm-hmm. which had her snots and her other mucus and stuff on it, and then kills the mother, puts his hand on the wall. And now the DNA from the pacifier is transferred from his hand onto the wall in the blood. Which is, which, what, was there any, sorry to interrupt, but did they ever figure out why he took the pacifier? Like, clearly he, I mean, he, I mean, he's, he's a piece of shit, but he wasn't. He wasn't a true demon. He didn't harm the child. Is there a reason? No. Was it just adrenaline? Uh, yeah, we think that uh, we do think that that was the case. That he 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 just just, he just did it. Look, when you when I thought of the same thing, Tommy. I have to tell you, I said, man, we're gonna have to sell this to a jury. But think about it. Days later, he had the pacifier in his pocket. Yeah. Or a pacifier, because I don't want to give away what what happens next. He had a pacifier in his pocket. What what is a grown man doing with a pacifier in his pocket? Right. So um, now we have 
the we have the scenario. And I said to the doctor, Dr. Shaler, are you prepared to testify to that hypothetical that you just gave me? He said, absolutely. There's no problem. And if I can't do it, the serologist who actually did the work will testify to that because that is a scientific it's a scientific certainty there's no no ifs ands or buts that little girl's dna is on that wall said okay he said now you now i know because you know i've done i've been around the block a few times i have to identify the pacifier that was in his pocket as the little girl's pacifier because that now closes the door on any possibility, right? So what do I do? I bring the father into the office and I sit him down and I say to him, cause he knew, he knew that there was a problem cause I had kept him apprised of all of this. I sit him down and I don't say anything to him. I don't tell him why he's there, what he's about to do. And I say, um, I have to ask you a question. Your daughter is missing a pacifier, is that correct? He goes, yeah, how did you know? He said, her favorite pacifier, I have not been able to find it. I've searched everywhere for it. It's it's not in my home, I have no idea. And she was crying for it at one point. I said, okay, well, I'm gonna show you something and I'm not gonna say anything to you about it. I just want you to tell me what you what your first reaction is when I show you this. So I have a detective come in, opens up the evidence envelope, and we put the pacifier on my desk. Without me saying a word, he said, where did you find it? That's my daughter's pacifier. I said, how do you know? He said, trust me. I know that that's my daughter's pacifier. That's exactly the one. I've seen it a thousand times. That's the kid's pacifier. I said, would you be willing to testify to that in court? I don't tell him why this is important. Mm -hmm. He goes, absolutely, I'd be ha- I would absolutely testify it. That's my daughter's pacifier and no one can tell me otherwise. So now I've got, I've got the door closed. And now all I have to do is convince a jury that all of these little bits and pieces kind of fit together. Um, and, uh, and we, we were able to, uh, we were able to do it. The defense attorney, when I brought in because I had to give him notice of what I was going to say with regard to the DNA analysis and the analysis of the blood and all this other stuff, the new analysis. He, the same guy who said to me, thanks before, said to me under his breath, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I guess that's good, though. That means you know you got him, right? Oh, it was a good thing. It was a, it was a very good thing. It was a very good thing. So we... Um, we try the case and um, and everything, everybody who was involved, the kid who was in the window with the dog, you know, the funny part about that is I had, you know, heard that I read the detective's report about the dog and about the kid and, and then saw him later on at the lineup, but I had never gone to his house. So I had never seen, you know, so during the preparation for the trial, I went to his house with some of my detectives, the guys that worked for us in the DA's office. And we approached the, um, the, the, the fence, the house was fenced in, we approach it, and this dog comes out at somewhere, barking at us, going crazy. My detective friend says to me, we got the right house. This yeah. is this is the place. Yeah. And um, so 
that also verified the story to us about how the dog alerted the kid to, you know, to someone coming out the window. So, you know, when you think about it, Tom, when you have somebody totally independent, this is a guy who didn't even know who lived in that house. He didn't know anybody who lived over. He didn't have any connection to this, this unfortunate uh, woman who was killed. And he was of the same race as the defendant. So it was not as if I had some yeah. Jew guy testifying, you know, in yeah. the case. Um, he was terrific. He was terrific. He held up on the stand. And think about it. How could anybody shake him? What was he? What could a defense what attorney the, do? What was the guy the, said, I, all I'm telling you is what I saw. And I saw that guy come out of this, the, that house is, you know, the kitchen window. So yeah, there was no, you know, there was no, there's no gain for him. Like what, no, what was he saying? You know, it's not, it's not, it's not Dick Cheney, former CEO of Halliburton, really pushing for us to invade Iraq where it's like, huh, there might be a little connection. This is just a guy. It's just yeah, like, this, this is what I saw. I just, the, leave that, me alone. That was, that was, that was it. So when, you know, when you look at the, the first page of the story and it's how a, a bloody handprint and a baby's pacifier, you know, caught a killer. And, um, it was, it literally was the pacifier. Well, of course, when the father testified, now I'm setting this entire thing up, right? This, all of this testimony is leading to the father coming in. And, um, when I take out that pacifier and do the same thing I did in the DA's in my office, I said, do you, what do you see? Then my daughter's pacifier, without a doubt, without a doubt. And he couldn't be shaken at all, Tom, on cross-examination. Not at all. He was um, he was a rock, you know, in terms of this stuff. And, um, and I mean, when you think about it, he, his entire family and his entire life was uprooted yeah. by some guy who who was, you know, just a, a just an animal, really. I mean, what he did to his wife is is incredible imagine how, how do you inflict 40 stab wounds on somebody it was there's no was there's no horrible. yeah there's no you know maybe domestic you know family is getting a divorce from the wife was unfaithful and a guy loses his temper and smacks no. her it's a dude that followed her in pulled her panties down and then stabbed her to death 40 times yeah and took and a fire of a child yeah, and when you think about what he had done to these other women in terms of yeah, you know, yeah, that grabbing them from too. behind and yeah. <laughs> yeah, his his whole criminal history of doing that this. was his that was his thing, you know. Yeah. He, um, I got to tell you, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and when that woman who had him arrested told us what he was um, and she and what he was his proclivity was, and she told me she said, Mister Vecchione, I got to tell you that I know other people who he's done it to. They're just too afraid to come forward. Mm -hmm. But um, she, um, you know, that was, that <laughs> shocked me, I have to tell you. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of perverts in this world, but that one is a, and it was a specific religion. I mean, the women were of a specific religion and a specific sect within the religion that he would do it to, that he did it to, which is. If it wasn't so tragic, it would almost be comical. Like if it wasn't so, and it, I, have, I have to say that very generally, but it's like yeah. if it wasn't so tragic, it would almost be comical because it's not even like, what's your type? Oh, I like uh, I like girls with short brunette hair. No, I like Hasidic women, and I specifically like to put my finger in their asshole. 
Yeah, it was a really bad situation. It's, and again, it's not to make light of it. It's it's it's, but it's trying to I guess paint like a general light on it. Like yeah, what and, a weird thing. Yes, and he would do it on the street too. That's 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 the other thing. He would do it on the street. So. And, hey, and hey, man, if that's something you want to do, like with consenting adults, hey, more power to you. I'm not I'm not knocking that. I mean, I'm not going to tell anyone their fetish is weird. Knock yourself out. Right. Not when it's sexual assault and then murder. And then it was a, a uh, from a child. Yep. You know, the thing is that the other part of this that was new to me, and I had done a lot of trials by that point, but I had never had a palm print as part of my of the evidence. This was a this was new at fingerprints, of course, but never a palm print. And um, when the the detectives came in, the, the experts came into the precinct that night that he was arrested and took his palm print. I watched them. I watched how they, you know, how they inked it and um, and how they put it on the paper and, you know, and made sure that they had it had it done right. Um, and we had to make sure we had it done right, because think of it, we were going to compare that to basically a bloody print that was found on a wall made out of um, made out of uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Drywall. Not, not concrete. Um, yeah, it was sort of drywall-ish. Yeah. yeah, not no, 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 not stucco. It was flat. It was flat. But in any event, it was not the ideal surface for you know for reading prints and reading that kind of stuff. But these guys are are terrific. You know, the guys that do that are are terrific. And I had some experience with fingerprints before because I had done cases with fingerprints, but I had never had a palm print, you know, before. And, um, and it is unique. You know, there are aspects of your palm, Mm -hmm. the the ridges and things of your, on your skin that, um, uh, you know, that, that make it a unique, um, unique to each individual. So, so that was, um, that was a, a learning experience. I have to tell you that it was, um, it was it was really a very 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 interesting case, but it was one that I had a lot of pressure because because we lost that other big case and things were still bubbling up and you know it was uh, the DA was like you know I, I the DA is a politician yeah you know he's got he needs votes out of that community so you know you don't want to have women killed or you know people killed and not ha- at least have somebody who's responsible for it pay the price. Yeah. So he was um, he was very, very, very much interested. I mean, he wanted he would call me during the trial all the time. How's it going? What's going on? How's it going? Now, I, I had just been back to the DA's office. I, I didn't really know him that well at that point. Um, when I was in the DA's office, my first stint, um, he was in charge of the rackets division, and I had not spent any time in rackets at that at that point in my career. So I didn't really have much uh, much contact with him. Um, and when he hired me, when I got hired again, it was people who I had worked with for my first stint who now came to work again at the DA's office who told, told him about me and they, that's why he hired me. He needed someone to do trials and to do these kind of publicity trials. Cause I had been doing trials, you know, outside my career. You know, I, I, when I say outside, I'm talking about defense, defense trials. So um, so there was a lot of pressure. In fact, I had one guy that I, I knew I was in, went to grammar school with him. He was a detective in the office. When he saw me after the verdict, he came up to me, gave me this big hug and said, 
it's good it's good that a, a guy from the neighborhood saved our asses you know so that was a, that oh, yeah. was kind of a okay. kind of the best thing that ever happened you know one of those one of those moments that you don't forget you know yeah. so i was uh, i was gonna say kind of a an odd side note just got my my brain turning um with fingerprints and with handprints they're, they're actually finding that with like with uh your voice granted you know it's not like a recording of a walkie-talkie but like your voice just on a phone call is about a hundred times more unique than your fingerprint here it has like an auditory signature which is very weird to think about because when we think about things like x key or not x key score echelon or, or stellar winds the things that snowden exposed for yeah. better or worse i'm not even going into the, the you have your opinion on him i don't care but the fact that there is a dragnet surveillance program for america and the world that started post 9-11 is just record everyone's every phone call and now we have things like right we have things like alexa which there are already la- mass yeah. lawsuits against yeah. amazon and on a side note amazon's development program for alexa got a 600 million dollar stipend from the cia during development but the mass so let's not even go into conspiracies let's just go what we know the mass surveillance dragnet of the national security agency picking up everyone's voice all the time and then we think about something like the pacifier where you don't know what piece of evidence you'll need you can kind of see that again i'm not even arguing for or against it just stating objective facts you now have everyone's voice at every phone call at every time stored in a somewhere you never know what voice you're going to need. And no, I wasn't there. I didn't kill him. And then they find that, you know, actually your, your voice was picked up on a, your voice was picked up on a cell phone recording of a party in Toronto. You were in Toronto, Mr. Kerrigan, you weren't in ocean city. And it's like, Oh fuck. And it's, but, and the, but they can go back 11 years and find that. Well, you know, the only problem is that not problem with the only kind of flying the ointment there is that you've got to hope that you get it from them. You know, a lot of times when, the government has things that you want or can use. You don't yeah. they're not as forthcoming with well, they don't want to law enforcement, you yeah. know, and particularly state. They looked at us. They looked down at us, you know, yeah. the federal law oh. enforcement. Oh, yeah. So, no, because the, the act of giving information then reveals their uh, information gathering technique, which itself is yeah. classified. And no, I'm not I'm you know, I was I'm staying apolitical on it, but I mean, no, my opinion is that's horrible because in this case it's good, right? You're trying to find a killer, guy, pacifier. What happens when the NSA turns into a political tool and all of a sudden it's hey, you see that guy Tommy, and I don't like what he's saying about X, Y, and Z. Can we just wind back the clocks and oh, twenty twelve, he was in Athens, Georgia, and he said something ooh, that was a little misogynistic. It would really suck if we leaked that online. Now he's a podcast, and it's like that's a dangerous thing because yes not only can you get what you can't get what you want it's a tool to be used oh mr vecchione oh we don't like this thing oh well 22 years ago Ooh, did you know that you you know you said the n-word on a phone call and he didn't for all the listeners he didn't but oh you said that oh hmm well that might not Ooh, mr joe rogan i don't like i don't like you interviewing bernie sanders did you know joe rogan said this 11 years ago and it's that man that is a that is a dangerous tool yeah it's um yeah. 
Yeah. Look, you could you could abuse anything that is supposed to be used for the good, and well, yeah, um, if that if that happens, then we're in a lot of trouble. Let's yeah, let's let's face it. Well, you know? I mean, it's the same. So, you know, what is a butter knife used for? Is it used for toast, or in the, is it used for murder? And it's, hey man, and it's it, and then now we're just spiling off into the weeds. But it's, I mean, what is that program used? Do you prevent a nine eleven? You know, right after nine eleven, when you're watching people jump to their deaths and and burn to death, and you watch two hundred and ten story buildings collapse you see a lot of people saying all right fuck the rules let's start surveilling everyone but then 20 years go by and you start going is this a political tool is this a so it all comes down to the you know as soon as a tragedy happens we're all like get rid of the constitution let's go get everyone but then enough time passes and it's and that, that's not what the founding fathers wanted at no, all. So, no, you know, the, um, but I, I just want to make sure that your listeners know the reason why. If you if you get the story, and and, and again, an unabashed um, a plug, it's ninety nine cents. Yeah, no, on, it's, on, yeah, yeah, no, plug it. It's ninety nine cents. And, um, it. It's a it, when you read it, you won't find the the references to the you know to the Hasidic Jewish woman. We we didn't. First of all, her family is still still around, and, and both. My writing partner and I wanted to make this as, um, you know, kind of uh, as anonymous without using that word exactly the right way, uh, way as we could. But we wanted the story is there and I and you read it. So, you know, that I I'm, I'm telling you the story in the way it happened. But the story is basically the same as as what's in Hand of the Killer. So, you know, yeah. Um, it's a uh, and, and we and so, you know, now the link or the the, the kind of hook that we used because the woman in and handed a killer that's killed is the wife of a cop yeah and the thought is that she was killed in revenge for what carney had done yeah so in our case the real case that woman was a Hasid, was a hasidic woman and it was thought at that time that she was killed because of the to revenge for the little boy who was killed on his bike so that that's how we we kind of link yeah. the two things together well you have to do that you can't you can't go through and I mean that's not fair to people who are still alive and who are still no no you can't no. do that at all yeah it's it's Look, yeah it's this podcast I make up names for friends that I have I don't yeah. say hey you'll, yeah. you'll see well I know that you're going to get this because I know that you're uh, you're now a fan of the books but when you get the new when you get the new one um, homicide is my business is the name of it and it's about the Sicilian hitman. We changed names in that, of course, because first of all, people are informants who are giving information. Yeah. There's no way we're going to give names out, you know, that way. And there are other names that we we just we just use that were nowhere close to the names of the the real person. It's it's the only way to do this, even in a book that is totally based on on fact, you know. Yeah. So um, or is fact, I should say, not based, not on, based fact, on fact, but is fact. Yeah, is yeah, fact. yeah, yeah, yeah. So for, um, for all the for all the new listeners, because you have had a recent bump in them, um, Mr. Vecchio. That's good uh, to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. It's uh, I will continue to fight this this goddamn censorship to the end of time. But uh, you are the author of two other books, and we've discussed this. You can go back on the podcast and find them. I can't recall which episodes they were, but Crooked Brooklyn and uh, Friends of the Family. Both of which, Crooked Brooklyn is more eye-opening. Friends of the Family is outright terrifying. But um, those are both available. Um, well, Friends of the Family, no, Friends of the Family isn't on. Uh, Crooked Brooklyn's on Audible. Friends of the Family is not. But you can get your phone to read it to you if it's on Kindle. Both yeah. of those are. I'll put those in the description and sticky them in the top comment. Those are good books. And as I always say to everyone that listens to this podcast, 
this is a one-man show. I can I get to have on whoever I want. I don't have on anybody that I don't want to have on, and I don't plug books that I don't enjoy. There are a lot of books I read, and I go, I'm not going to have that guy on. That book sucked. I only have on guests that I like. I only plug books that I enjoy. I have yet to plug a bad book. Those are enjoyable books. If this is your cup of tea, this is something you're interested in, go grab them. They're, 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 they're terrifying, but they're true. And we got the guy right here. Yeah, and you got um, the next one. I know that you've invited me back to do the other short story, uh-huh. Murder on the Bridge. That's also a um, pretty I, – I don't know if you've read it yet, but it's it's also a, a – it's a, it's a terrifying story in, a, in, a, in another way, but it also has a really um, kind of twisty ending as to how we actually – how we actually got the guy. And it's um, – it's a it's a it's good because the person and I'll just give you a little a little taste. He, in my opinion, was at the time and still his the personification of Satan come to Brooklyn. He was such a bad guy. I mean, such a bad guy that um, that it was uh, he deserved every single day that he spends in jail. This guy every single day. And um, and and, you know, and it's um, you'll understand what I'm talking about. In terms of the way that we got him, it was it was almost by accident. I have to say, you know, so um, it was. It's interesting. So we'll talk about it the uh, yeah I'll, the I'll, next time. I'll text you and we'll put together that episode. It's also a. It's also on uh, Amazon as a Kindle single too. Okay, okay. I'll find the link because so, you sent me the document, but I don't have a link for it. So I'll put in the link for uh, Hand of the Killer, and then we'll do uh, we'll do Murder on the Bridge next time. Right. I was gonna say, um, just kind of as a side note, yeah. There's kind of this like uh, this interesting. You're right. There's there's the Saint Augustine quote: uh, "Truth is like a lion; it does not me- need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of the cage. It will fend for itself." And then there's another quote. I don't remember who it's from, um, but I heard. I, oddly enough, I heard it on a lecture about the Apollo missions. But it's it's truth is like a fab truth is a perfect fabric it can't be cut it's it's seamless there's no missing pieces all you can do is cover it up but you can never destroy it and it's you kind of see that coming through you know it's like mathematics like you could the sun could explode everyone on earth could die all all remnants of civilization could disappear and then life could evolve on some other star system in a billion years they would still discover the structure of the atom that one plus one is two. There are certain things that it's like they will get uncovered no matter what. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see that with this case is it's like the truth. It, it exists in space time, the event that happened. And it's almost kind of like an archaeological dig. You kind of just you're brushing off things. You find the guy with the dog. You find the woman, the babushka and the glasses. And you find the pacifier and the handprint. And it's this whole thing. You kind of just uncover it. And it's it's like, oh, it's you really can't hide it. It's, it might take time, but you uncover all the pieces and then just plug them all together. And boom, there's your guy. Look, when we, when you're correct, I, and I, I thank you for that. It was exactly the way we did this. But when you when when it first happened, um, it was a uh, it was a shock to the people in the neighborhood because this was not a someone who was a political type woman who was out in the streets, um, you know, protesting. There was no rhyme or reason connected to the uprisings or the unrest in that community that led to her. So while people all speculated, you know, and that is is what happens in these situations that oh this must be revenge for what happened to the little kid on the bike 
That was not the case at all. This guy was just a pervert, a, a pervert. Now, why he decided at this point to escalate his perversion from, you know, the finger in the butt to 40 stab wounds, I, I don't have any answer for that. I don't know. But I remember how um, how that neighborhood reacted when this happened. And, and she was, um, it was a shock. I mean, a total shock because she was a total innocent. I mean, just someone who was not connected to anything other than raising her family and, and taking care of her husband, you know, and that was it. And um, those are, are ones that you, you know, you are, that drive you to make sure you do the right thing and, and get the right evidence and, and put the right guy behind bars, you know? So yeah, um, yeah. that well, it yeah. worked out well for us. Hell yeah. Well, Mr. Vecchione, let's wrap this one up and uh, okay. I'll put the links in the description and in the comments and uh, I'll text you and we'll set up the next one. And uh, as always, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, thank you for having me, Tom. Of course, absolutely. It. You're an enjoyable guy to talk. Yeah. Again, I don't invite people back on that. I don't want to. There's no, there is no formalities here. If I don't want someone back on, I'll just ignore them. I don't give a well, shit. So thanks. I have you back on because I like talking to you, man. You're a cool guy. So, uh, okay, we'll wrap this up. But uh, yeah, thank you very much. And I'll text you. We'll set up the next one. All right. Thank you, Tom. All right, my man. I'll see you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Take care.